Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Solo again today as we continue this offseason. No Taylor, no Shark, riding solo. But we got a wonderful, wonderful interview with assistant head coach at USC. We got Chris Capco in the building. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so I was really excited to sit down with him, just me and him. No Shark, no Taylor, like I had mentioned, riding solo today. But we are brought to you by the Barnburner Podcast Network. Go subscribe on whichever device it is that you use. Your college hooper of the week this week, Gabe Pruitt. Yes, that's right. Of course, I just dropped that you're going to be listening to a lot of USC talk. No better way to set the tone than with Gabe Pruitt. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of other better ways, player-wise, I suppose, that you could set the tone. Maybe Evan Mobley, maybe DeMar DeRozan, Benny Boatwright. Some of those players come to mind. But Gabe Pruitt, don't get it twisted. The man's an NBA champion. That's right, 2008 Boston Celtics. So I'd like to go back in time a little bit and say your college Hoover of the week this week is NBA champion Gabe Pruitt, who is also really solid at USC of those 08 Celtics that were champions. Another USC great, Brian Scalabrini. Where the hell am I? Gabe Pruitt, he's your college Hoover of the week. We're brought to you by Royal Digital Marketing, a.k.a. RDM. RDM specializes in website development and digital marketing for small businesses and startups. So if you need a website, you got to contact them at colin at royaldigital.co. That's C-O-L-I-N at royaldigital.co. And make sure to check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com. And as always, follow us on Twitter at CBB Theater. You should also follow me at Subi232 to find out where the feet is and make sure to follow Taylor at Taylor Dammel and the shark at V underscore shark underscore BB. Let's open the curtains. Great interview lined up. I mean, great. Super insightful from Chris Capco, assistant for the USC Trojans. We get into a lot of items talking about his upbringing, his background, his Florida backgrounds. As a matter of fact, he played on a team at Florida with David Lee and Matt Bonner, played for Billy Donovan. Um, Talks a little bit about him transferring to USF when they were in the Big East, right? 
Then, of course, dive into his time at USC since 2016. We look to recap that amazing Elite Eight run. I think people forget that USC, when they were going on that Elite Eight run, they demolished teams. I mean, in their three wins, they destroyed teams, okay, including Kansas, including Kansas. So we look back on that. We also take a look back at last year's heartbreaker against Miami. What a wild finish that was. Miami ends up going to the Elite Eight, much like USC did the year previously. But that game was on a knife edge, okay? USC seemed like they were completely cooked. Miami was up seven with about 40 seconds left or so. And then a miraculous comeback happens. Of course, it does fall short. Drew Peterson with a semi-half-court heave reminded me a lot of the Gordon Hayward shot against Duke in the national title game. But we relive that moment. We talk a little bit about Evan Mobley as well. Uh, And, of course, two coastal states he's from, Florida and California. I had to ask him a little bit uh, about the beaches and also maybe some football players as well. I do regret not asking him Disneyland or Disney World. That probably would have been a better question. And the second I stopped recording, uh, I regretted it. It came into my head like, shit, I should have asked him that. Almost had a right mind to give him a text, say, hey, let me pop back on real quick. Uh, have you back on real quick and, and answer that question for me. But Chris was really, really tremendous. So we'll get to him in just a few minutes. I want to bring up one thing, though, and that's airport karma. reason I'm bringing that up is because I actually just walked through the door after visiting my three-month-old nephew. Yes, very new to the world. He's incredibly cute. Uh, It's my brother-in-law's kid. We came from Seattle. or We visited them in Seattle, I should say, and I just walked through the door, obviously, after a few days of visiting them. Let me tell you something. Airport karma. On the way there, my wife and I, We had one seat that was not occupied. Lovely flight. Very relaxing. It was about a little over four hours going from Chicago to Seattle. So that's a decent amount of time. But it it was great. Flight was on time. Good service. Didn't have to taxi too long when we were in SeaTac. We got in a little late, but that's all right. Um But again, the big key was that there was nobody in the middle of the seat. Now, the reason I bring up airport karma is because the flight that I just got off of was absolute hell. Just terrible. Any bad, miserable adjective you can think of, synonym for miserable, whatever, that's what it was. SeaTac really lived up to its reputation regarding security lines. I mean, you want to talk about every single personnel not knowing their role, not playing up to their potential. If I want to take it to, to, to hoop terms, you got it. Security was awful. Mismanaging people, telling them to go in completely different directions. Apparently my wife's uh, pants were a little too loose. They asked him to pull her pants up going through security. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. Uh, then of course the passengers, you have the people that have absolutely no idea what to do when they go through uh, an airport security line, you have you have the people that are taking selfies for some odd reason in the security line. Um, just complete, complete and total mismanagement and a failure, a failure really from all the key players involved in the SeaTac airport. And it was getting a bit chaotic in that in that line. So that was a pain in the ass, but we get through security. Okay. 
get on the plane. My God, the collection of people in and around my area were terrible. I had, I think, about a six or seven-year-old kid who was playing video games uh, or, or watching a movie without headphones, and his parents just didn't really seem to care. He was pretty disrespectful, I think, to his parents. And, you know, the parents, you're, they're in a tough situation. They're in a very tough situation because they probably can't yell at the kid in public. Uh, some some passengers might pass judgment on them, but it really did seem like the kid was walking all over them. I'm no parent. I don't have a degree in parenting, um, but it was just complete chaos and madness uh, on that flight. So that's why I say airport karma is a real thing because on the way there, it was lovely. I was super excited to meet my nephew. And then on the way back, I just wanted to see my dog. And it felt like there were so many obstacles in that way. People not knowing to put their bags uh, in a bin, right? And again, yeah, I, and, and we couldn't get a TSA pre-check. They just said, no, no pre-check today. You got you to go through the regular line. But yeah, it was a miserable experience. I, I I think SeaTac needs to clean it up because it's not representative of the city. Seattle is a wonderful, terrific, amazing city. I think it's a top tier city in America. I really do, especially in the summertime. I've only been a few times and they were all in the summertime, but I've had a hell of a time every single time I'm out here. Seattle is an A plus city. That actually, might, I, I want to, I, I might need to take a look at the discrepancy, the all time discrepancies between the city and the airport. And that can go both ways, right? So the airport could be lovely, but the city itself might suck or vice versa. In this case, Seattle's an awesome city with a lot to offer. Great food, great culture, really nice weather in the summertime. But SeaTac is just morbid, awful, cannot stand it. But we survived, we advanced. Now let's advance on to uh, our interview with Chris Capco. Actually, let me say, instead of advance on, let's fight on. Get ready to fight on, folks. We're ecstatic to welcome to the program an assistant coach at the University of Southern California. We got Chris Capco. Chris, let me first start by saying thank you, of course, for joining. But I am putting myself in grave danger of sleeping in the on the couch later tonight. Uh, my wife is a UCLA Bruin, and saying fight on is pretty taboo in this home and in her circles. So I may have to be operating a little undercover over here. I see a wry smile on your face. Yeah, watch your back as you you move through the house, man. That's uh, those are dangerous words to say for someone who's uh who's married to a Bruin. So yeah, be careful, all right? I'm gonna do my best. Hey, let me start here first and foremost because we're lucky enough to have you on as a result of someone that we had on a few weeks ago, and that's Mark Rogers. So there's a ton of great coaching trees in college hoops. You think of Larry Brown, Dean Smith right? Gary Williams, Rick Patino. In the podcast world, I feel like Mark Rogers is now that uh, A1 coach that's giving me the coaching tree. I just interviewed Jeremy Pope. He also referred you, Chris, uh, to jump on. How do you and Mark go back? How do you guys have a relationship? I just know Mark from uh, Mark being around LA. Um, he was uh, close and helped train before he was actually on a staff, one of our former players. And Mark was always the guy who I thought we could be honest with and who would be honest with you. Um, he knew all the kids in the area, hardworking, just overall good guy. And uh, he knew a lot of the same people. You know, I'm not from L.A., 
So um, some of the people who, when uh, we first got the job out here at SC, you know, were on staff like Jason Hard. And then now Jay Morris, who's on our staff now, knows Mark well, too. But those guys, just knowing them, you know, just being around, you get to know Mark and um, really like him and bright future ahead for him. Just overall good dude and, and have really enjoyed getting to know him over the years. Absolutely. Between you, between Jeremy and Mark, you guys are young gentlemen growing in this game and, and making I'm a name for you. Them, though. Those two, are, and Jeremy, I don't, I don't, I thought the question was geared more towards um, Mark. Um, Jeremy's the same, the same way, just hardworking, overall good guy. Um, you know, he was at Compass for a while, and he's he's really paid his dues, as has Mark. But went to Canada, Compass, um, and I thought handled himself the right way as he was trying to kind of build relationships and get into the business. And I'm glad things have worked out for him as well. But much younger than me, though. Hey, you, you guys, none of you guys look a lick over 25. So, and, and in the coaching world, that's pretty good, right? 40's right around the corner for me. So I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Well, so you would mention, obviously you're not from the Southern California area doing a little bit of research. You're from Florida. You went to Lakeland high school, right? Or Kathleen high school in Lakeland. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So you got a few famous alums. You got Ray Lewis who went there. I think Freddie Mitchell also went there. Uh, were there some? Uh, were you able to cross paths with them? Um, Ray Lewis is well before my time. Um, watched him growing up. Freddie was probably six years older than me. So his younger brother was a little bit older than me, and his sister was like a year older than me. I want to say his younger brother was like two years older than me, and his sister was about a year older than me. So I went to school with those two and knew Freddie a little bit because of those guys. But I wouldn't say we had much of a relationship. You know, six years in high school, it doesn't put you in high school at the same time, and you're just kind of in different parts of your life. But got to know him a little more as we were adults. But not, you know, it's not like we keep in touch or anything like that. But knew his younger brother and his sister a little bit better and – um so that's my connection to them. But Freddie was a good basketball player, too. Yeah. And speaking of basketball, you first started off with the Florida Gators, right? I think you spent a semester at Florida playing for them. I'm looking at this roster, man, and you had some names. It's pretty incredible. David Lee's on the team. Matt Bonner, two NBA champions. I believe Matt Walsh was on that team. I'm curious to know a little bit about your relationship with David Lee and Matt Bonner. What were those guys like off the court? Because I feel like a lot of times, you know, Matt Bonner has this Red Rocket uh, nickname. David Lee's a consummate professional. Did you get to know them at all during your one semester there? I was there for a year. Um, and so I did. I spent a full season with them. And um, both good guys. Um, Matt was a senior. It was David's sophomore year, I believe. Um, Matt was just like, man, really good guy, pro, um, hard worker, but just nice to everybody, uh, good teammate, um, you know, everything that you would want a senior to be, basically, just kind of embodied. And then ended up, you know, probably lasting in the NBA for all those same reasons, right? People liked having him on a team wasn't overly talented at that level, but, you know, just good dude, good teammate, smart, hard worker. Um, so he kept a job for a while. David was more talented, probably, so to speak, ended up being an all-star for a year, but still good dude, smart player, good teammate, things like that. So both of them, you know, my year at Florida, I enjoyed it. I was around good people. Them two were just two examples of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall good guys. Matt Walsh was my roommate. Um, Matt's now, I don't know if he's full owner or part owner of the New Zealand breakers. Um, so he's doing well. 
Uh, but just overall, good group of guys. So really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, I, and, and spearheaded by Billy Donovan. Now, mm-hmm. this is early Billy Donovan, right? Before we know him as the man today, the two-time NCAA champion, uh, a guy who was on the brink of beating that 73-9 and Warriors team with the Thunder, now the head coach at, at the Chicago Bulls. Chris, in that year that you spent with Billy, what was it like playing with him? And did you foresee, I mean, it could be tough as a young kid foreseeing what a grown man's future is, but could you see greatness in Billy Donovan's future? Well, by the time I had joined him, he had already been to a final four. So he was, you know, established, I would say. Um, Now he hadn't won two national championships yet, but um, yeah, I mean, he was a great coach. Obviously he kept talent coming into Gainesville. Um, so I would say when I got there, he had already established the culture and the program that I think he had wanted. And if I remember right, they were in, I hate saying this, man, but this was like 20 years ago now. And, um, so it was like, Oh, two, Oh three. Yeah. Almost 20 years ago. But I think they were in some like weird stretch of, um, first round exits, maybe like four or five in a row or something like that. And if anyone who's been in coaching just wanted to make four or five tournaments in a row, it's really hard to do. Um, so to get there and lose in the first or second round, I met make it past the first weekend. People were starting to get a little frustrated because he already been to a final four. And, you know, a year later, two years later, whenever it was, he wins back to back national championships and stuff like that. So to say, I saw like greatness. I just knew he was a good coach who had already established a good program. I wouldn't say I was shocked by anything, but, um, you know, just the way they operated, the people they kept around, everything was always first class. He was a great guy. He had already established a program. And then, you know, I was not shocked to see that they won national championships or he had the success that he did because he, uh, you know, just the way they operated in the short time I was there was always impressive. Is there anything that you may have consciously or subconsciously taken from Billy Donovan that you maybe incorporate in your coaching scheme or your coaching approach? No, you know, I had somebody ask me that the other day and um, I was 18. You're not thinking about that stuff. Um, you know, like, yeah, I, I probably wish I would have looking back at it, but I didn't at that point, I wasn't necessarily thinking about coaching, you know, I just wasn't worried about that stuff. So not to say I didn't pay attention, but in terms of like writing things down or keeping notes about what we're doing or certain things or practice drills or philosophy or anything like that, you know, that's all kind of a blur to me now, 20 years later. And from someone at the time who was 18 years old, who wasn't necessarily thinking about this part of their life, you know, I didn't, I didn't do a good enough job of kind of taking advantage of that year, if that makes sense. Well, like you said, you're young. I think you're a little hard on yourself there, Chris. And so after, after that year at Florida, you transferred to USF. So what's going through your mind during that transfer process as you approach the decision to say, Hey, I want to go to Tampa and maybe even, you know, like you said, that was the heyday of the big East as well. What was your thought process like in transferring? So USF was always the hometown school. I'm from Lakeland. So Lakeland's about, I want to say, you know, probably from where I live to campus, 35 minutes um, to Tampa, you know, depending where you're going at 30 miles, 40 miles, something like that. And um, we had one of the players from my high school who I kind of grew up watching, ended up going to South Florida. His name was BB Walden and BB had a really good career at South Florida. So you know, starting from when he was there, I was probably 13, 14 years old. We would go to games to watch South Florida. So it was the hometown school. Without getting into too much detail, um, 
you know, I had some some family things that came up around my senior year of high school and around that time. Um, and I just thought it was in the best sense for me to kind of transfer back home to help with some of that stuff, but also knowing that they were going to give me an opportunity to be on the team. And, um, you know, so I took advantage of it. I got everything I wanted out of the experience. My first year we were in Conference USA, um, you know, and I think that year we made the, the semifinals of the Conference USA tournament. That's back when they had Louisville Marquette. League was really good. Louisville Marquette, Memphis, Charlotte. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting some teams, but the league was really good. The following years when we went to the Big East, and uh, that was our first year in the Big East, and that was tough. There was a noticeable difference in the, the town and just the, the competition. Um, and we struggled, but from a personal standpoint, I got everything I wanted out of the um, experience. Like I knew I wasn't going to play in the NBA. I just wanted to have a college experience, something that I could enjoy. And when it was over, it was going to be over and things like that. So there was never any delusion on my end. Like, Hey, I need to come here and score 20 so I can make the NBA. I just wanted to have a good college experience. I wanted to get my education. I wanted to play while I could. And I got everything out of that. And, um, you know, enjoyed my time there, graduated from USF and have really fond memories of, of USF. So in the 10 minutes that I've been chatting with you, I can already tell you're a pretty modest guy. Do you mind if I read your accolades at USF? Because are, you're already finished. No, 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 no. That's not true. No, see, you're, you're way too modest and you're lying, Chris. When you went there as a junior, you were fifth in Big East, in the Big East in assists. And as a senior, you were the team captain. You earned academic all Big East honors as a junior and a senior there. And you were also the Bulls nominee for Big East Basketball Student Athlete of the Year uh, in 07. I mean, that's incredible, man. In the Big East, like I said, the heyday, you mentioned that noticeable difference coming from Conference USA to the Big East. Physicality, speed, height, length, what was it? I mean, if there was one thing you could really hone in on, what was the biggest difference that you noticed? I just think it was the depth, the depth of the league. Like, you know, we went from playing um, and obviously with depth becomes size, physicality, length. But I think it was just more like the depth. Like I want to say our first year in the league, it was a I can't remember if it was a 16 team league or a 12 team league. But I want to say eight teams made the tournament, which at the time might have been a record. And then another four made the NIT. So you had 12 postseason teams. And I also want to say that first year, we maybe played a month straight of ranked teams. And so every night was just a really good team. And even that year, like the bottom of the league, like we had a guy on our team who was an NBA player, Solomon Jones. Rutgers had Quincy Doobie. Um, I want to say Providence had someone. But like everyone had an NBA player. So like there was just really no nights off. I mean, it was, you know, like every – night was really just a really tough physical we we struggled to score on that team but we could really guard so we were a lot of times in like slugfest where it was like 49 46 53 and we lost a lot of close games that year we had a you know a disappointing season but we were very competitive and we would get into these rock fights but you could just every night like so in conference usa and no disrespect for those teams you played maybe louisville and then you played St. Louis was in the league, or then you play Charlotte, or you play Charlotte was really good too. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful to any teams, but then instead of that, now it was UConn, okay? Then Syracuse, well, then Pitt. Pitt was really good at the time. Then uh, uh, Notre Dame, then uh, West Virginia, then um, 
and I'm forgetting teams, Louisville, they made the jump with us too. Then Marquette, Marquette came over there with us too. Then Cincinnati, Cincinnati came with us too. So you see there was no – Providence was good there too. It, like there was just no drop-off in in any game. And so it just felt like every game was like, whew, you know. So it was a great league, man, really good league. And we'll get to this part, this little aspect of it later in the interview because it's topical right now. But just thinking strictly geographically, right? Yeah. I mean, what was the closest team to you in the Big East coming from Tampa? Yeah, there wasn't. But, you know, Conference USA was a weird league, too. Like, you'd go west at the time to, like, TCU. You'd go to St. Louis. Um, you'd go north to Marquette, to Milwaukee, Cincinnati. That was a weird, a weird league geographically, too. UAB was in the league at Conference USA, and UAB was really good, too, at the time. Um, so probably Birmingham, but you're still hopping on a flight. Whereas you're right, the Big East, probably the closest school at the time was would be Cincinnati. Uh, Louisville, probably if I had Louisville, to get okay, a little bit south of uh, Cincinnati. But yeah, one of them two. Um, or those two are your two shortest trips. I mean, and everything's right there in the Northeast, so it was, you know, pretty similar to what we're going to do here in the Big Ten, and not to. Uh, not to jump ahead, but, you know, in the next couple of years. And that does get exhausting, man. Like, everything is just uh, – you're not switching time zones, I guess, like what we're going to be doing. But, you know, when you're just three hours every trip you go and you're not flying – at the time we weren't flying private or anything like that, that stuff just starts to wear on you a little bit. You're missing more class time. You're getting back. You're getting right off the plane. You're going to practice. You know, things like that. They just kind of throw you out of your rhythm a little bit. Well, so I think that's actually a perfect segue. I did. I, I, that was obviously a topic of discussion that I wanted to bring up a little bit later on in the interview, but let's dive into it now. Uh, the scuttlebutt, obviously, it's not even scuttlebutt. It's a fact. You guys are moving to the Big Ten in a couple of years. First and foremost, your initial reaction. Who told you, I guess? Was it the AD? Was it Andy? How did you find out that you were going to the Big Ten, and then what was your initial reaction? So I was walking on campus with our ops guy, about 8.30 in the morning that day, we were going to just find our freshmen. You know, they, they were in class. So we were just making sure they were in class and saying hello to them. They had probably been on campus for a week at that point. And uh, John Rothstein called our director of ops, Mike Sweats, and goes, hey, uh, he put him on speaker. Have you heard anything about you guys going to the Big Ten? And uh, Sweats and I just laughed it off. Like, I think I even said, F no, you know, out loud. That's not happening. We're not doing that. And uh, we just joked about it and laughed. And then maybe like two hours later, the guy, John Wilner, who writes for the San Jose Mercury News, who covers the Pac-12, started kind of breaking things. And it's like, OK, this is picking up momentum. This is picking up some momentum. I guess maybe there's some truth to this. And uh, I was not at the NBA Top 100 camp. Andy and the rest of our staff was. Andy probably called me one o'clock or something like that. said, hey, I just got the phone with our AD. We're going to the Big Ten. I'm sure you heard. And I was like, yeah, and it's about to come out. And so literally we found out in real time, just like everybody else did. Um, and, yeah, so when you found out, I found out. Damn. Yeah. First of all, of course it was Rothstein, man. How many how many contacts do you think that guy has in his phone? A lot, a lot. Way more than, way more than a lot of people because he knew that, you know, before a lot of other people knew that. So, so looking forward then, how does this impact – your job in coaching. Okay. So for me on the surface level, the first thing that I'm looking at is potential recruiting, right? So you schools, they have a particular geography or area that they harp in on. Sometimes um, this is going to add an extra layer potentially of complication because maybe some parents want to be close to their kids and see their kids play even in road venues in the PAC 12, 
relatively conducive for that. Uh, but that's just on the surface for me. Are there any other items where this impacts you that you can share with us? Um, not that I know of yet. Um, obviously, it's still pretty new. and I think we're all trying to figure out what it's going to look like and what everything will look like when we get there. Um, two years from now, when we actually tip off, who knows what the league looks like? Who knows what, you know, college athletics looks like? Um, you know, we've discussed our recruiting. Um, should we recruit in the Midwest? Should we do Chicago or uh, Milwaukee or Ohio, the state of Ohio or, you know, places like that where um, typically we wouldn't recruit. But now a kid can come out here, live in L.A. and still go back home every other weekend and play in front of family. Um, so we've tried to figure out, you know, as far as local kids, I think it would be weird if UCLA didn't go because all these kids grow up watching the Pac-12. And now if we were the only ones, it'd be like, yeah, I'm playing in the Big Ten. But with us in UCLA, I think being like the preeminent options for the most part in the Pac-12, I think that changes a lot. And then who knows what the Pac-12 looks like, right, and what these kids want to do. So I think we're still figuring it out to answer your question. And no one really knows. Uh, you know, at this point, it's just been um, – it's more than an idea because it's happening. But it's just being thrown out there with no real – reaction to anything until we actually go through it so i think you know here in probably two years we'll have a better feel for everything but right now i think we're still trying to figure all that stuff out what you know one of the things people ask is what's travel gonna look like i have no idea it just sounds daunting i just know i'm going to east lansing or ann arbor or madison or piscataway or maryland and uh you know do we do that as travel i mean we don't know you know what i mean so like um, I think there's a lot of things that are still going to get thrown our way that we're trying to figure out and that we'll get a better feel. And then we just got to adjust in real time to it. Well, selfishly as an Arizona guy, I'm bitter because, uh, my wife's family, they're from Huntington beach, California. So whenever Arizona goes out to UCLA or USC, it's easy for us to get out there yeah. and it's a quick drive. So, uh, unfortunately, I mean, and, and obviously Arizona UCLA is a huge rivalry. Arizona USC has developed over the years with the success of your program as well. Last question on, on the big 10 move is this, are these conversations strictly amongst your coaching staff or have you talked to the players about this at all as well? Yeah. I mean, we haven't, for the same things we're figuring out is why we haven't really talked to our players about it. You know, some will still be here. Um, you know, some will be gone. Um, so again, cause we don't know a lot and I think we're trying to figure it out. We haven't had much discussion with our players other than, Hey, we're going to the big 10 in two years. So there's not really much to talk about at this point. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? So it'd be something with recruits. Now, obviously we're addressing that. Like if we're recruiting a kid who's in the 2023 class, his sophomore year, he's going to play in the big 10, you know um, if you're a 2024, we're now starting to recruit you're never going to play in the Pac-12. You're only going to play in the Big Ten. So we're starting to discuss that with them, but the same questions come up. It's like, what does that look like? I don't know. You know what I mean? We just can tell you who you're going to play, uh, who we think you're going to play, and that we're going to be going to these spots, and that's really all we got for you. So in terms you know, what else it does to your actual day-to-day, we just don't know right now. Kudos to you, Coach Cronin, as well, Andy. Navigating not only the immediate season – but also planning for the future because planning for the future is a critical component of yeah. any college sport, right? Recruiting wise, uh, facilities wise, team wise, all that, you know, building a team. Uh, so it's de- very difficult to juggle, but let's pivot to you now, Chris, and let's pivot to USC itself. You've been with the Trojans since 2016. 
I'm always curious to know this. You're actually one of the more longer tenured assistant coaches that we've had on the program. What are some of the things in the, what, six years or so that you've been in LA? What are some of the things that have changed since you got there? And then what are some of the constants that are still there to this day that were there when you first came on campus? So I've actually been with Andy for eight years. I was here for two years as his ops guy, and then I left and, and went to another spot and then came back and now going on, I think it is year six. So actually it might be year seven. Um, we're but probably any, entering year seven. Yeah. yeah in year seven. So that's what it is. Yeah. So I've been here for nine of Andy's 10 years. Um, are you asking in terms of like the university or just our job or just well, the, I, I suppose within your locker room, with your relationship with Andy, I don't know. I'm curious to know because you have to adapt year in and year out, right? Philosophies, coaching styles, players. But is there also something that's stagnant or static throughout the entire time? Like, hey, year in and year out, we are going to preach this mantra, this culture, our identity. What are some of the things that maybe have changed year to year as the game has evolved? And then what are some of the things that have, have stayed the course? Yeah, honestly, in terms, I think uh, Andy came in offensively being known as like an offensive minded guy. Um, and not that he's not, but I think our teams have changed over the years where like the last probably six or seven years, we've really had a good stable of big guys. And um, you think, man, you got you, you had a pretty damn good one a couple of years ago. Yeah, but even before that, like everyone. Yeah of uh related to evan and evan was fantastic but onyeka before him chemezi nick rakosevich benny boatwright nikola jovanovich i mean that's you know we probably had seven like all league big guys in a row and so you know with that you know on our first couple years we weren't as um we didn't have as many good bigs but what we did have is we we inherited julian jacobs who ended up his junior year so andy's third year being First team all Pac-12 led the league in assists, and Jordan McLaughlin was a sophomore that year, and I want to say he was second or third in the league in assists, and we were really high powered. Um, I think everyone that what they anticipated when they hired Andy, um, how it would look offensively is kind of how it looked. We scored a lot of points and um, got up and down, and we had two guards who could really push the pace. We had shooting. We made the tournament that year, year three. Um, you know, and then year four, I think we were kind of the same. But then after that, we started, we, you know, we had one year in between, I want to say it was um, six, no, seven, 18, 19, sorry, 18, 19. And, uh, you know, we just weren't good enough defensively. And uh, that year, we just, we, we weren't tough enough. We weren't good enough defensively. We were probably good enough offensively. It was our worst year in this little seven-year run that we've been on. And we just felt like defensively we just weren't where we needed to be. And, um, you know, the following year we made a concerted effort to um, really, really be good defensively. And I think the following year, so it was Onyeka's first year, um, we played two real centers. We played Nick Rakosevich, Onyeka Kongu. Isaiah Mobley came off the bench. Um and we were great defensively. We were tough. We were physical. I want to say we led the Pac-12 in like field goal percentage D, three-point field goal percentage D, points per game allowed. And we were near the top of the league in a lot of statistical categories. But we played slower. And we weren't scoring a ton of points. Uh, we were bigger. Our spacing wasn't as great. But I think we found a niche. So then the following year, we had Isaiah and Evan. Chavez Goodwin came off the bench. Again, I, I want to say we're like third in the country in two-point field goal percentage D. We're near the top of the league. We signed Drew Peterson. Um, 
we had a kid, Max Agbonpolo, who now is in Wyoming with Mark, and we were just big. We were one of the tallest teams in the country. Fast forward to this year, Evan Lees, we had Chavez Goodwin, who was a role player on that team, but now he's a uh, a starter. He averaged 11 to 6. Isaiah, Max, Drew Peterson, and again, we're one of the tallest teams in the country. We're good defensively. And so we haven't necessarily scored as many points as I think we once did when we first got here, but we've been one of the better teams defensively in our league in the country the last three or four years. We've been one of the biggest teams, and I think that's kind of become our niche. We've adapted to that. Um, things are probably going to be a little bit different this year with how we play, but that's kind of now who we've evolved into, being big, being tall, trying to be as big as we can across our perimeter as well as up front, um, and then just really being one of the better defensive teams or trying to be the best defensive team we can, but really putting an emphasis on that and uh, and that being a staple of who we are. Yeah. It, it's It's interesting. Because to maybe the untrained eye, some people will look at the Pac-12 and they automatically think run-and-gun offense, fun, up-tempo, right? But when you take a look at it, teams like you, some of those Sean Miller-era Arizona teams, Dana Altman's Oregon teams are always stout defensively with guys like Dylan Brooks who could just shut you down, right? The Pac-12 has a lot of really good defensive, stout-minded teams. Like you said, you're huge as well. Like You, you just clog up the paint. Yeah, I mean, those uh, those two-point defensive stats were, were something else. So it is interesting to see the course of, of that shift as well. And so, Chris, I want to be brutally honest with you. When Andy came over from FGCU, okay, when they hired him, I did not think – he was going to work out at USC. Now, hand up. Oh, that is completely wrong. That is that has obviously been proven incorrect. Just out of curiosity. So, again, perfectly honest, I thought it was because it was just a flash in the pan at FGCU. I thought it was just a nice Cinderella run, and that was a blast, by the way. As a, as a neutral observer who just loves fun, that was a blast. But when you actually look at it and what he did with FGCU, taking down Georgetown and some of those other great teams, uh, Andy Enfield – you know, looking back on it was a tactician and is a tactician. And so now I've obviously been proven incorrect. He's done a wonderful job at USC. What makes him tick? Why is Andy Enfield so successful there? Yeah. First of all, I'll say this, Andy doesn't get the credit he deserves when you start looking at some of the best jobs people have done. And there's a lot of good coaches. So again, this isn't to take, you know, anything away from anybody, but you know, Andy's done a heck of a job here, establishing culture, um, making USC relevant in LA, um, you know, and just making it like he, he's really ingratiated, I think, himself with the community and the basketball community. Whereas when we got here, like USC, for whatever reason, the, per, the perception of the program was just not in a good place. And, you know, from talking to people, you could hear they had had good teams, but they, they had a good team here and there or a good player here and there, but never really anything sustained. And I think what Andy did is just open the program up to the community. People feel comfortable to come to practice, feel comfortable to reach out to all of us, feel comfortable just to reach out to him. Um, and so I think people feel comfortable. And I think that then permeates to local players, local coaches. Obviously, we wouldn't get any of them. When we first got here, we couldn't beat UCLA out on a recruit. But – you know, the kids who I think were going to San Diego State or who were going to Oregon or who were going. When we first got in the league, Colorado had three really good L.A. players. Utah had three really good L.A. players. Cal had a couple. Um, Oregon had a couple. Arizona obviously had some. Um, Arizona State had some. Everyone had players from L.A. except USC. And so I think what we've done is we got the 
when we couldn't be UCLA or Arizona out for a player, we got the players who would normally go to these other places and do really well, like Chemezi Metu, Benny Boatwright, the guys who UCLA didn't necessarily recruit, but they come to us. We knew they were going to be good players. And, you know, next thing you know, they help get your culture going. Same with Jordan McLaughlin, although I think UCLA did recruit Jordan. Um, but, you know, we had, we had, I think, made it, I don't want to say cool is the right word, but people felt comfortable coming to USC because they could see the direction of the program and that we were opening ourselves up to the community and we wanted everyone to be a part of this. And I think that was important. I think that still stands to this day. Um, you know, to what makes Andy tick, first of all, he's a smart guy and he's a good dude. So I think everyone enjoys their experience around him from coaches to players. Like I enjoy my experience working from him. He doesn't berate me. He's not disrespectful to me. He allows me to have a life. He allows me to coach. He allows all of us to coach, all of his assistant coaches. He asks for a perspective from our video guy, from our ops guy. So I think he empowers everybody around him. And so I think the experience of when you get people, they enjoy it. So now you've built a culture. There's a culture of just wanting to get better, of just wanting to win, of just being about the right things. And I think that goes down to our players. Our players get here. Do some of them get frustrated because they don't play as much as they want? Absolutely. But I don't think anyone's come here and not enjoyed their experience or had an experience of, of getting better to some extent. Um, so I think he's established that and then he just continues to work. You know, a lot of times we, uh, we hit a tough patch, um, you know, like the FBI year, if we're being honest, we were preseason top 10 team in the country, uh, returning a team that brought everybody back from a team that made the second round of the tournament, lost to Baylor at the very end of the game. FBI hits, Tony gets arrested, um, D'Anthony gets suspended. Benny Boatwright deals with injuries. And we just dealt with like a litany of things. And so we don't make the tournament and we lose Chemezi to the NBA. Jordan McLaughlin graduates. And so now we almost got to start over. Well, the following year, we don't do as good. And, um, you know, we had just kind of probably missed on some guys who were our guys. On paper, they look good, but just probably, you know, not the right team for us. And then, you know, we went back said, hey, this is how we got to do things from now. Never stopped working, kept working. In the following year, we went 22 games, and we're right back at it. So there was never no complacency, um, always thinking forward, one, about how we can get better, but two, then being honest with ourselves, like where are we deficient at? How, we do, how do we need to attack this? And then what do we need to do to move forward to make sure we don't happen that again? I think that was kind of like a turning point for us. Um, but, you know, Andy's a smart guy. He's a smart guy on both sides of the ball. He's just a smart guy in general. Um, a realistic guy. Um, there's humility. Um, there's a good culture now of just enjoying your experience and just want to get better and of teamwork of making sure everyone's moving to the right things. You know, whether it's bringing in a player or hiring a new assistant coach, we want to make sure everyone's aligned with what Andy wants to do. And that's just team first, hardworking, good guys. He doesn't have to micromanage. Everyone comes in, gets their work in from coaches to players, and we're all pushing forward just to win games. So I know I got kind of long winded and going you know, back and forth. I couldn't tell you all the um, the numbers, um, but the amount of NCAA tournament wins for coaches in 10 years, Andy's up there with the best in the country. What he's done here in terms of how many games we've won over the last six or seven years is up with the best in the country. For whatever reason, he doesn't always get brought up with some of them, but Andy, I think, has put his name in. And obviously, we got to do a little more winning now to get to a next level for him. We probably need to make another Elite Eight or a Final Four, another Sweet 16. So there's still some things we got to do, but I think in a short amount of time, you know, he's only been a head coach for 12 years, I think, so or 11 years now. So in those 11 years, I think he's established himself as one of the better head coaches in the country. 100%. And I think two huge keys 
in viewing him as a very successful coach, which of course he is, is first of all, he's got to be one of the more most longest tenured Pac Pac twelve coaches, right? It might be like him and Altman. I think Altman and him, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then when you look at a team's perception or a program's perception, right? When he gets there, I don't know if the expectation necessarily was for Trojan basketball to make the tournament every single year. I don't know about for the rest of the country, but for me personally, I look at you guys as a tournament team year in and year out. That's like that I think is now the expectation for USC basketball. And that's a direct result of what, of what Andy's done. And speaking of the tournament, I got to get your take and your feedback insights on some of these uh, tournament memories. And we'll start now a couple years ago with that magical lead eight run, man. You guys were such a blast to watch. You were putting on for the Pac-12, which I appreciated. You, UCLA was putting on for the Pac-12 as well. Uh, I think Oregon might have gotten there. I'm not sure. Uh, but you guys were – We beat Oregon in the Sweet 16 that year. You beat, yeah, that's right. So, And you were destroying teams, okay? Yeah. You were absolutely destroying teams in your three wins, I believe, yeah. So let's go back to that run. You were a six seed, and – like I had mentioned, you were demolishing teams. Were you surprised by any of these results? Right. So you, you smashed Drake, uh, beat, who did you beat at Kansas? I mean, that was like a 30 plus point win, I think. And then yeah. you beat Oregon. Were you surprised? Um, yeah. I mean, you don't go into the NCAA tournament thinking you're going to, I think we beat Drake by like 15, 16, maybe 14, something like that. Kansas was a 30 pointer. I don't remember the specific score. Then Oregon, we were up 20 most of the game. I think we ended up winning by like 14 or 15 as well. You don't go into that thinking you're going to beat those teams like that. Like we never thought we were going to beat Kansas by 30. But, you know, that team, we had uh, we had beaten teams kind of like that all year. Like we had beat BYU as a six seed earlier in the year by 30. Um, we had beat Stanford by 30 that year. Um, we had like a lot of 30, not a lot, but you know, four or five, probably 30-point wins where you just, you know, like, it's hard to do that. Um, we knew we really liked our team. We thought we were seated kind of low at six, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to get into the details. We should have won the Pac-12 regular season that year. We got robbed. Um, you know, Wait, by, get into the details, Chris. I'm good if you, if you well, want to. Yeah, I mean, we played all 20 games, and I'm not putting this on anybody. We played all 20 games. We went 15 and five. Oregon went 14 and four and won the league technically. And we had beat Oregon. We only played them one time and we beat them. There was two games Oregon didn't play. One of them they were supposed to play at UCLA. They didn't play the game. I don't know whose fault it is, but that's how it went. We were 15 and five. We played all 20 Pac-12 games. They played 18 Pac-12 games. So technically we didn't win the league, but we knew we liked our team. And we thought we had a chance to make a good run. Obviously, Evan was Evan. But, you know, the, what set us apart is we ended up – Taj Edie was great. And Taj did not get first-team All-Pac-12. He got second-team All-Pac-12, but you couldn't convince me that he was not a first-team. That year, he was as good a guard as there was in the league. And Taj was playing at a high level. And we just had a team where the pieces just fit. And, um, you know, everyone kind of knew who they were, roles were defined, and everyone just kind of knew what was asked of them. And, you know, we were really good defensively. Where we would struggle at times in games is three-point shooting. Like, we lost to UConn earlier in the year, and I want to say we lost by, like, a point or two. And we were, like, three of 18 from the three-point line. Couldn't make a shot. The games we lost, we just didn't shoot the ball well. So we play Kansas. 
we shot okay against Drake, but I think Kansas, we hit like 11 threes. And then Oregon, the following game, I think we hit another 11. And when we would hit 10 or 11 threes, we were really, really tough to beat because we were going to guard at a high enough level. And so that's why I think we did what we did to those teams. You know, I still say Gonzaga and Baylor were definitely the two best teams in the country that year. But I think if we would have played anyone else other than those two, we were final four good. Um, and that's not to take anything away from Michigan or UCLA or Alabama or Houston. But, you know, Gonzaga, the way they could score the ball, they were an all-time team. And I think Baylor was too because they were just so experienced at that point. Um, but And we didn't play well against Gonzaga either. But I, I think that team, we were good enough to be in a Final Four. I just think we ran up into, you know, no one had been Gonzaga at that point. They were still undefeated. So What, Baylor had like two losses on the year as well? So, yeah, you're right. It was yeah. pretty clear to those two teams. I think Baylor the year before, before everything got shut down, I want to say they were number one in the country for the most part and then brought that whole team back. So, like, they were so experienced and so – and I think their only losses came after, like, a shutdown. And, you know, so catching those two kind of at full strength, which they were at the tournament, was, was you know, it was going to be tough for anyone else other than those two to beat them. And, um, you know, so I think we were Final Four good. Gonzaga was just better than us, and they were better than a lot of teams. And then especially when we didn't play well, um, you know, it was going to be tough to beat them. And, and um, But, yeah, I mean, that team, that was – we didn't expect to beat teams by that many, but we did think we had a team that could make a run and um, and do something, and we did. And, you know, that was a fun team and just a good group of guys to be around, and it was fun, everything that we achieved that year. So you mentioned that – that story with Oregon Mm -hmm. was there a real fuel to the fire in that pregame locker room when you were going up against them saying, Hey, we got this chip on our shoulder. We want to give them a lick back or no. No. I mean, at that point we just wanted to make the elite eight. It wasn't like, Hey, you know, it wasn't Oregon's fault either. I would say it was probably more the league. Like they're, you know, play the game. I don't think like Dana Altman was given, you know, an ultimatum. Hey, play the game and Dana was like no 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 I don't want to play the game you know what I mean like I just I don't think it came from the league for whatever reason things didn't work and it was a strange technicality and I'm not putting that on Oregon I just think that's the way the COVID year was right but I think we were definitely Pac-12 champs and we should have been recognized as such because we had more wins than everybody and we played a full slate of games Um, we went through shutdowns we crammed in games like we played three games in a week I want to say three times that was hard to do you know what I mean like um, so, you know, it was, I, I want to say like the last three weeks of the year, we were playing Thursday, Saturday, Tuesday, and we'd just be gas coming around us. So we put in, we put in our work. Like we weren't, we didn't run from anything. We did not play games. We had a shutdown too, that we had to come back from. We were cramming in, you know, we played a game on Saturday and now we're fitting one in on a Tuesday, no prep, anything like that. Um, and so you know, there was a, there was a change and there was like a malleability to what we had to do that. I just thought we, you know, we deserved it. And we had won as many games. We had beat the team you said was, you know, one on the technicality. And I just thought we should have been recognized as such because I thought that team deserved it, but it wasn't, I'm not saying it was Oregon's fault or their coach's fault or their administration's fault or anything like that. I, you know, I just, I think it should have been a little bit differently is all I'm saying. So we'll move away from that aspect of it, but I'm still curious to know the X's and O's of it, the prep for Oregon, because mm-hmm. this is a team that you're incredibly familiar with. I don't know how many times you played them in the regular season, either once or twice, but this was either going to be your second or third time for the right to go to the Elite Eight. Yeah. What does that prep look like? If you can try and remember the film session, the discussions with Andy leading up to that game, what was that like preparing for Oregon? 
Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you play them in the Sweet 16, so now you got, I think we played Kansas on a Sunday, and we played. So that either be a Thursday or a Friday, yeah, right? Thursday. I was trying to remember if it was Thursday or Friday. I think it was Thursday because I think we played Gonzaga on a Saturday. But, um, yeah, so you had a week to prepare for them. And I think what makes Oregon tougher in our league sometimes is that they play a little bit differently than a lot of other teams. They press you. A lot of times they'll press and they'll, they'll mix up between man-to-man and a matchup. And they'll change their press from full court, three quarter court, half court. So they do a lot of things that other teams in our league don't do. So if you got them on a one day prep, all of a sudden you're just you're uh, preparing for something different than what you normally see. One because of how many times we've been in the league, or you know just how many times we played Oregon, being in the league with them, and then two having three days to prepare for it. We felt pretty good about it. We knew what they were going to do. Um, you know, I think what made us a tough matchup for him that year is we had ball handling big. So even if you wanted to trap Taj, like Evan could handle the ball, Isaiah could handle the ball. We really had five guys who could handle and make decisions. Um, so we were a tough team to press. Um, and then, you know, what set us up, we, we made shots that game too. So like Taj made a couple threes, Drew made some threes, Isaiah White hit like three or four threes. And so as a team, we collectively made threes. But in terms of the prep, you know, we worked on going against their press, handling pressure, making decisions, making them pay when we were being pressed, um, running the plays that we were going to run regardless if we're, you know, man-to-man or their matchup. You know, we just knew we had a set things that we were going to do regardless of what they do, and our guys knew it, how we were going to get into it, how we were going to attack that. Because, um, you know, sometimes they're in their matchup and they're switching things off, and what you guys can tend to do if they're not used to seeing is kind of just hold the ball and say, hey, coach, look back at you. What do you want to do? Instead, you know, we worked on, hey, you know, whether you see man, don't worry about what you're seeing. Just run this play. Just get through it. Get through it with foul. So, um, you know, so we had three days to kind of work on that. And uh, I think that was to our benefit. I think they're a tough team to um, when you got them on a one day prep, a little tougher team to play. But three days was definitely an added benefit for us playing them. Was there any sort of adjustment to playing without a crowd? Was that, did you find that to be a detriment, an advantage, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think by the time we played them, you're 30 games in and we were used to it because we had played in front of nobody all year. So um, at first, it was like, I don't think it was a, I mean, I think this was a benefit to the teams that had to do that this year. We had a group of guys who just naturally brought it every day. So in practice, we never had to worry about coaching effort, energy, anything like that. So then that translated to games. Did we have a game here and there, like where I tell you we were cramming in Tuesday games? Yeah. Like, Riverside almost beat us that year. We played, I think, the Arizonas on a Thursday, Saturday. We came back on a Tuesday, and you could just tell our guys didn't have it. Now, we won the game, but, like, we did that on a Tuesday. Um, you know, later in the year, we had a game like that, too. I'm trying to think who it is. You play a Thursday, Saturday. Now you got a Tuesday in front of no one, and it's just like, you know, your guys are a little a little white. But, um, yeah, I think by the time we got to that point of the year, we had a good group of guys who just naturally had some juice anyways. They, they played hard, regardless of if there were zero people in there or 10,000 people in the arena. Um, but especially by the time you hit the tournament, you were just, you know, you're just kind of used to it at, at that point. That's just what it was. So I don't think there was any detriment to it. For sure. Got to talk about last year's tournament game. Mm-hmm. That was a wild, wild game. I know it was a heartbreaker for you, but as a neutral observer – what a blast of a game that was. I, I ended up going back and watching it. With about 40 seconds left, you're down seven. And then an insane comeback occurs. Seven-point deficit with 40 seconds left. Take us through the second half of that game because you were getting outplayed, honestly, Chris, in the first half. And then in the second half, you come roaring back. 
And then it seems like it's it's out of reach with the last 40 seconds left. And then we have mayhem with about five seconds. Take us through that second half. Yeah. Um, you know, the first half, man, what became one of our Achilles heels throughout the year, or especially toward the end of the year, was turning the ball over. And, you know, unfortunately, that carried over into our game against Miami. I want to say in the first half, we had 12 turnovers. And that was the difference in the game. It was like a 10-point, 12-point game going into half because we just turned the ball over so many times. And, uh, you know, we made some changes to our lineup going in the second half. Went into halftime. Just really challenged our guys. I mean, they responded like we thought they would. Um, and we came out. We took care of the ball. We got stops. We started scoring. Um, and, you know, we get back in the game. And we I won't forget it. We're up four with probably like 12 to go. And we had momentum. And sure enough, uh, late clock. Isaiah Wong gets switched onto our center. Chavez Goodwin takes a really tough contested shot, and Chavez fouls, and he goes to the line, makes all three. And we kind of felt like that was one part of the game that took some of our momentum. The other part, I think, was like a one-point game or tie game late in the game. And Reese misses a free throw, which is a one-and-one. So he misses the front end. It goes out of bounds. It was right before two minutes, okay? And they couldn't go back and look at it because it was right before the two minutes. It was like a one-point game at that point. They tipped it out. They saw it on replays that they tipped it out, but the refs couldn't go back and look at it and adjust the call because it was before two minutes. So they go down. I think they scored. They go on like a 5-0 run. I think you're right to get it to seven, you know, to to seven-point game. We come out. We run a play for Drew, um, and Drew makes a three. Um, Yeah, so we run a quick play. So we run a play for Drew. Drew hits a three. It's a four-point game. They inbound the ball to Charlie Moore. Charlie Moore, we trap him. He steps on the sideline. So now we get the ball back. Run another play. Three-pointer for Drew. We get They're going back to look at it, make sure he steps out of bounds. We get to bring our guys over. We call a play. Andy calls a nice um, play for Drew. Drew gets a three. So now it's a one-point game just like that. Um, they come down. We foul them. Wardenberg misses the first, makes the second. So now it's a two-point game with like 20 seconds left. So all this has transpired in like 20 seconds. You got like a John Nash brain right now. I know it was just last year, but still. Andy would be more, he would be able to tell you every little thing that happened. For me, I know most of it, but there's certain details that kind of uh, skip my memory. So anyways, we, I think we call it, yeah, I think we call a timeout. We go the length of the floor. Drew drives down the lane. And so we're down to, and we thought he got fouled, okay? They get he gets Cam McGusty up in the air before he goes up. McGusty comes down. I thought he got fouled. So be it. That point of the game, you don't call it. Okay. Miami doesn't call a timeout. Charlie Moore walks it up. And basically all he does is drive. There's no really play. They slip screen for uh they send a guy up to slip a screen. Charlie Moore gets downhill. And it looks to be almost the same thing that happened on our end, but they called it. And he goes to the line and hits two, and then we had three seconds, and we, we you know, threw it to Drew, I think, at half court. He made a desperation shot that actually hit the rim. Remind, hey, that reminded so, me of Gordon Hayward's shot against Duke in the title game. So we lost by two, but to be honest with you, we shot ourselves in the foot. Um, you know, could things have gone differently for us down the end? Probably, but, you know, we I think we ended the game with 18 turnovers. They only turned it over three times. We went in all week. We had talked about our guys. We can't turn the ball over. We can't turn the ball over. We can't turn the ball over. And, of course, it's the first thing we do. And we just put ourselves in a hole. And, um, you know, then we were up. 
you know, the Chavez Goodwin one that I talked about, um, we had some key turnovers late, you know, so we, we did some things to ourselves that just kind of shot ourselves in the foot that, you know, when you're trying to win at that level, you got to minimize mistakes and, um, you just can't do certain things. And it's hard to beat teams who are that good in the tournament. If you turn the ball over 18 times a game and, um, you know, so that's just this shot us in the foot. So. Well, it's it's wild, the NCAA tournament, just with so many storylines. But you, you take a look back and you say to yourself, that Miami team that we almost clipped got all the way to the Elite Eight, right? Was was there any part of you saying, damn, that easily could have been us, maybe with the path or anyone playing? And, and I mean, a, a couple of years ago, you said you were Final Four good. You look up and you see Miami in the Elite Eight. Yeah, I mean, that's how it goes, man. You know, the one thing Miami had, which I think is such a huge thing to have in the tournament, was guard play. So, like, they go and play. They play Auburn the next game. And I think the same thing happened. I think Auburn turned it over, like, 17, 18 times. And Miami only turned it over, like, three times. If you only turn the ball over three or so times in a game, you're going to be in the game. And then if you're you're clicking and you're making shots, now you're going to be really tough to beat because you're just getting shots up every time down. And that's what – they didn't hit shots against us, so that's why it's a game. But when you only have three turnovers, you're going to be in it. And, um, you know, so I think in Auburn, then they they I want to almost beat them by 20 or double digits, but they didn't turn the ball over and they started making shots. So, you know, you're tough to beat at that point. So I don't want to say would we have been there. I don't know. But, you know, you just take it one game at a time. Um, but it just shows you how small the margin for error is. You're close. And next, next thing you know, you're playing in the next game. You're saying, man, that should have been us. And, uh, you know, so I try not to live in that world where I'm like, it should have been us other than we just didn't handle our business. Yeah. Did you have an angle on that Peterson shot when it was up in the air? What was going through your mind? Were you like, oh, this looks decent. I was saying a prayer. Um, please, please, Jesus. But <laughs> it wasn't answered. Yeah. Hey, Chris, I'm going to get you out of here on some quick hitters, man. First and yeah. foremost, and, and we've talked about some terrific players, especially the big men at USC. We've talked about some of your teammates in the past. Is Evan Mobley the best college player you've been around, player or coach? Uh, yeah. Uh, just, you know, like, first of all, I thought, you know, he finished second for rookie of the year, so it goes to show you how good he's going to be. I think he's going to be like a 10-time all-star. He's what natural ability – he's what comes together when natural ability, physical ability, a work ethic, and just being an overall good person and smart person. Like, he has everything. And so he's he's going to be – I think he's going to have a chance to be a Hall of Famer. Um, he's going to have a chance to be a multi, multi-time All-Star League MVP, defensive plays. I mean, he's got all that ability and the opportunity to do all of that. He had it as a young kid, man. You know, I mean, he was special, mature, smart, overall good guy, good teammate. Evan had a game against Utah. He didn't take a shot. And people wanted to crush us as coaches, and I can see why they want to do that. But Utah had made a conscious effort that game where, like, if he touched it, they were doubling him or they were just going to literally sit in his lap and make him pass the ball. And Evan would come over and be like, Evan, at some point you got to take a shot. you got to shoot it over the top. you got to be more aggressive. But because they were putting two on him, basically, you know, he would pass the ball every time. And, he, you know, he comes out of the game. I think he scored on a free throw. Didn't have one of his better games statistically from a – but, you know, still impacted the game because he got other shots for people. But – you know, think about a kid in this generation. He took no shots and came out and didn't say a word. Like, he didn't care. He's uh, Everyone else stepped up. And it just speaks to the level of person that he was. So, unbelievable person and just, you know, gifted in so many ways.
Definitely. I feel like his on-court and even off-court persona reminds me a lot of Tim Duncan. And yeah. I know he's got a lot of those comps, just a quiet, gentle giant who goes about his business. And I have a lot of family, actually, who's still pissed off that he came in second for rookie of the year. They'll text me out of the blue being like, this is BS. Look at these stats between him and Scotty Barnes. And I'm like, hey, man, I, I'm not the one voting. I, I understand your beef. Evan Mobley is going to be a wonderful player. Um, best environment you've played or coached in it has to be a road game. Well, the best one in the Pac-12 by far is Arizona. Um, Arizona has an unbelievable home court. Um, they uh, they have basketball fans who know what's going on in the game. They know when to get involved. Um, You're not just pandering towards me, right? I'm not. I'm not. I wish I wasn't. Because if if there's players out there listening, this would be something they can use for their you know their uh, recruiting. But they have real basketball fans. They know when to get involved. It's a real home court. Like you don't go in there and just luck up and beat Arizona, even on their worst team. It just doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, you go in there, you got to be ready to do some things. You got to be perfect. Um, you got to make some shots. You got to be tough. Um, and you got to play as a team. If not, it's really hard to beat them there. Um, outside of that, the one that comes to mind is when I was at Florida, we played at Rupp after we had just become, so I think Sunday, we get named number one or I guess Monday morning by the AP first time in school history, Florida had been number one in the country. And we're playing big Tuesday at Kentucky. And I just remember that place rocking. And um, now that's a rivalry too, man. Yeah, it was, going, it was going crazy and uh, they ended up blowing us out. And, uh, but the place was just, it was going crazy. So in terms of one specific game, that place or, you know, but Arizona's Arizona's as good as any two. How about the worst environment? Zero juice, like you had mentioned. You're on a back to back to back Tuesday. You can you can take the the uh you know the neutral stance if you want. That's perfectly fine. But I gotta ask. Yeah, I'm gonna take the neutral stance. That's I'll, fair. Stetson, where I got my first job at. So you can you can only imagine what the Thursday games there look like. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so you got to recruit basketball players. I'm gonna stay away from them. California or Florida? Who's better producing football players? Um, because I haven't been that immersed to California football, say Florida. Okay. Yeah. Florida beaches or California beaches? California. Oh, that was quick. Yeah, California. It's not even close. What's the difference between the two? Um, I just think the coast of each. Like, um, you know, when you're driving like the PCH heading down to San Diego um, or – uh, like up to Santa Barbara, I just think the coast and just kind of like, you know, the, you're looking at water, you're looking at water, but I just think the cities, like, you know, if you're driving down Clearwater beach, Clearwater beach or Santa Barbara, um, you know, but not that there's not some, I, I guess I'm trying to think of the right way to say it, man. Like if you're driving, you know, the towns, I think the beach towns in California are a little bit nicer. So I think that kind of plays into a little bit. And like some of the, like, you know, San Diego beach, Santa Barbara, Pismo, like, to me, I think they're just a little nicer than, say, Clearwater, Jacksonville Beach, um, um, uh, Cocoa Beach, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, you're an expert in both California and Florida, so we'll take your word for it. We'll get you out of here on this, Chris. Bring them up on stage. It's the last segment we do with every one of our interviews. Mark, obviously, in this segment, had recommend that I reach out to you, and it's been amazing talking to you, Chris. So are there any individuals – boys, girls that you can name uh, that would love to come on to the program and, and share some stories? Um, you know, I bet Jason Hart wouldn't mind coming on. Um, 
you know, Jay Hart loves talking basketball and he's got a, Jason has a great perspective on a lot of things just because of his path and how he sees the game and how, you know, like he had to fight to stay in the NBA for so long. And I always thought he had a good message to our guys at USC because of that, because all of them had aspirations of doing that. And then Jason lived it, but it wasn't, not that it wasn't glamorous, but it wasn't easy either. And there was a certain humility and work ethic and, you know, how you fit in, how you stayed in, things like that, if you're not necessarily the guy who's scoring. So you got to be able to adapt to each situation and the competitiveness of it and the, uh, you know, just the stuff that goes into keeping your job year in and year out. Um, so I always thought he had a good story. Now he's coaching. He's doing it on the pro level versus the college level. And so um, Jason probably be a good one. Um, I'm trying to think of, of guys in our league or guys, some of my closer friends, um, you know, who have kind of been around and seen it from different perspectives. Um, but that would be, you know, Jay Morris on our staff would be another good one because Jay's been at a lot of different levels. And I think that, that you know, as I've moved up in levels and I've been at the Pac-12 now and been at USC, I think some of my, my best memories in terms of preparing me for this were being at Stetson and being at Georgia Southern and being at FIU and to see it from a bunch of different places and places where you're not so resourced. And so you got to figure out ways to, you got to be creative. You got to figure out ways to get more resources. You got to figure out ways to get kids on campus, you know, so I think those are some of the best things, best days that ever prepared me. And I think Jay um, has a lot of those same perspectives because he's been at a lot of different levels. And I think they help get you better as long as you embrace them and, and learn from them as you move up. Um, so those would be the two, I would say, off the top of my head. I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you so much. This was a blast, man. A real treat. Some of the details that you shared during your tournament time, some of those times you had in Florida, Andy Enfield, your perspective on him. This was really, really fun. And we wish you all the best of luck, Chris. Thank you so much for jumping on. Thank you. All right. Want to thank Chris for jumping onto the program. What a fun interview that was. Tons of stories, great detail, really got down to the granular level of his time in Florida. And of course, the last few runs that USC has had, they've been a key player. They've been a key player in adding another name to the Pac-12. That's short-lived now. They're obviously off to the Big Ten. Glad we were able to discuss that. Of course, it was John Rothstein that broke the news. The first time Chris hears about their move to the Big Ten, it's Rothstein on the other line. Pretty incredible there. Andy Enfield, again, has been doing a marvelous job. And again, and, and it bears repeating three, four, five, six times, I was wrong about Enfield. I was completely wrong about him when he came over from Florida Gulf Coast. Their, their schedule actually just dropped USC's, and they will be playing Florida Gulf Coast. So Pat Chambers versus Andy Enfield. That's right. Pat Chambers back in the fold of college basketball after, after leaving. I don't know if he was dismissed or if he left on his own terms. Penn State, but Andy Enfield's done an amazing job. USC is now a consistent player for tournament berths, which was just not the case. It wasn't the case uh, until Enfield really got there and, and has turned them into a consistent winner. So we want to thank Chris one more time, and we're wishing him best of luck. Before we get on out of here, I want to touch on two things. Number one, there's a little beef, little beef stew going on down in Lexington, Kentucky. You may have heard John Calipari and Mark Stoops uh, throwing a, a few a few shots at each other, and it's not so subtle. This all started with John Calipari wanting a new practice facility, and he basically ended his quote 
or he he said, look, maybe I'm taking it out of context, but he did say, look, we're a basketball school. In so many words, he said, we are a basketball school. Get me the damn practice facility that I want. Okay. And Mark Stoops replies back by saying, now, wait a damn minute. I thought we were an everything school or, you know, I, we've been really successful the past few years. Don't dismiss my football team. Don't just minimize the other sports within the athletic department. And I'm here to offer my opinion on this whole thing. First and foremost, what Calipari said is not incorrect. Kentucky is not only a basketball school. If you remember a couple summers ago, the shark, Myself and Taylor did a rundown of the top 50 programs. Kentucky's number one. They are number one. The amount of accolades, draft picks, wins, titles. It's all Kentucky, man. So what John Calipari said is not is, is not incorrect. All right. I give credit to Mark Stoops for sticking up for his guys. You have to do that. And he's clearly building something at Kentucky. You could certainly make the argument that in the most recent years, three years or so, Kentucky football has experienced, let's say, more success than Kentucky basketball. Okay. I think the COVID year, Kentucky didn't, they were just god awful. That was the year that Duke was also god awful. Then, of course, Kentucky loses to St. Peter's. Meanwhile, Kentucky football is racking up seven, eight win seasons and they're going to bowl games and they're winning those bowl games. All of that said, Mark Stoops, bro, you work at, again, it bears repeating, not a basketball school. You work at arguably the basketball school, the premier basketball school in the entire country, man. And you said, look, I'm just trying to stay in my lane. And again, I understand that you got to stick up for your players, but Calipari's right, man. This Kentucky is a basketball school. And I've long stated that if you give me a school, a power school for the most part. I'm going to be able to tell you within two seconds if it's a football school or if it's a basketball school. Okay. UConn, basketball, Notre Dame, football, Miami, football, Ole Miss, football, right? Duke, basketball, Carolina, basketball. These might be slam dunks to you, but if you look at even a bit more relatively more obscure schools, Washington State, football, Washington, I might hesitate a little, but I think I would lean football. I think the only school right now that I'd entertain an argument for either side is actually Baylor. Baylor has been really successful in football and they're a big 12 school in Texas. They've also won a national championship in recent memory. And Scott Drew has them as a consistent top tier team. Baylor might be the only one where Dave Aranda and Scott Drew can get into a into a room and really hash it out. And I'd entertain both sides, but for pretty much any other school, you're either a football school or a basketball school. I hate to break it to you, Mark Stoops, but you're at the basketball school, man. I love when people are saying, Oh, well, Kentucky's been Kentucky football has been a lot more successful than Kentucky basketball in recent memory. That's absolutely true, but you're digging yourself a hole because the majority of the country Big Blue Nation, when they say BBN travels, that's referring to basketball. When they're referring to the titles and the draft picks, it's all basketball, okay? And you can make fun of Kentucky for losing to St. Peter's. Lord knows I did, 
Okay, you can make fun of Coach Calipari, but he's got multiple Final Fours under his belt. It's not like Kentucky's over here. Kentucky football and Stoops is over here uh, competing for national championships. It's not like they're making the BCS uh, Final Four. Okay. Now, what Kentucky football's done is really impressive, and Stoops has done a wonderful job. And Stoops did basically say, hey, we weren't born on third base, and that's fair. Calipari, anyone who inherits Kentucky basketball is born on, on third base. But it doesn't matter. No matter how many wins Kentucky football racks up, it's going to need a combination of them, Kentucky football, being national title contenders every single year, and Kentucky basketball being an NIT team every single year. And that's going to have to accumulate over, I would say, 40, 50 years. Because you look at a program like Indiana. Indiana basketball has been relatively dormant for the past 20 years or so, 22 years, with the exception of maybe a few runs here and there. Now, I'm not saying their football team has done anything amazing, but is anyone questioning that Indiana is a basketball program? Right? Same thing with Miami. Miami's been kind of dormant for the past 15 or so years. Miami basketball has been has strung together some good some good runs. Like I said, they went to the Elite Eight. Those Shane Larkin and Kenny Kaji teams were really good. Is anyone questioning if Miami's a football or basketball program? No, because it's a football program. <laughs> Everyone's jacked up for Mario Cristobal. So let's take a step back. Stoops, Calipari. Like I said, I understand Stoops having to have his players' backs, and this is going to play well. Like, Mark Stoops is a guy I would want to play for. But it goes back to that age-old question, right? If you're one of the top recruits in the country, in football, I don't know if I would want to go to a basketball school. And that's exactly what Kentucky is. So, and you know what? You know what the funniest thing is? Calipari is not going to back down at all. He is not going to back down from from anything. He's going to say, look, yeah, I support the football team, but he's speaking truth. They're a basketball school. We'll see how that uh, impacts their relationship moving forward. I want to get out of here on a quick hug, though, a very somber, serious, sad hug, Pete Carrill. Rest in peace, Pete Carrill. Legendary head coach uh, for the Princeton Tigers and most notable from the incredible upset that he pulled against the UCLA Bruins on March 14th, 1996 in Indianapolis. First round, his Princeton Tigers, 10-point underdogs. 10-point underdogs. Not only that, but then, like I said, you want to talk about a basketball school. UCLA also has an argument for all-time great basketball school. Princeton gets the W. What a scoreline this was, by the way, 43-41. to uh, but Pete Carrill, the orchestrator of the Princeton offense, I think he was a coach for the Sacramento Kings for a little bit as well. But we're losing legends, and it really sucks. And I understand that, look, Pete Carrill lived a long, full life. He was 92 years old. But it really sucks that we're losing legends. And I feel like it's head body, head body here recently. Bill Russell passing away. Vin Scully passing away. It doesn't have to be just strictly to basketball or college basketball, but you look back, I think two years ago now, John Thompson passing away, Lute Olson passing away. All of these legends we are losing. And I suppose that's the nature of the business and nature of life. But 
Pete Carrill, I'd be remiss if we didn't give you a shout out here on theater and college hoops. Uh, wonderful, wonderful coach. Um, and, and gave us some of the best moments and one of the best moments in NCAA tournament history. So we are going to go ahead, get on out of here. We want to thank Chris Capco one more time for jumping onto the program and sharing a lot of his knowledge and sharing his stories. We very much appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time here on Theater and College Hoops.